Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast, that's Blue the Color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on PierceSalguero.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Blue Barrel a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and health humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today I sit down with my good friend, Michael Stanley Baker, a scholar of Chinese religion and medicine. We talk about Mike's international childhood and how his family history influenced his intellectual life and his training as a Chinese medical practitioner. We discuss his new book, co-edited with Vivian Lowe, The Rutledge Handbook of Chinese Medicine, which is groundbreaking and open access. We also talk about Mike's new book with Manchester University Press called Situating Religion and Medicine in Asia, which opens up a critical conversation about how we understand Asian medicine. Then we looked ahead to Mike's digital humanities project, a database called Polyglot Asian Medicines. Along the way, we talk about rabbit ducks and how do fish know that they're underwater. I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes to hear from more experts on Buddhist medicine and related topics. Welcome, Mike. It's fabulous having you here. My best friend in the world, my colleague, my thinking partner, and very dear to my heart. So I'm really happy to have you on this podcast. I'm just really looking forward to our conversation. It's a total pleasure. I would have come here in a heartbeat anyway, and I'm just super glad that this week we're able to do this. It's fantastic to see you, and you're the first person to actually be with me in the same space while we're having this conversation. So it's really great to be here in person with you. Just happened to catch you on your travels in the U.S. and happened to have the opportunity to get you to swing by Abington College so you could give a talk to my students and this evening for a little conversation in my office here. I should say, and what an office it is. It's amazing. It's the no-desk office, and it's filled with magical objects of wonder. And there are Buddha paintings on the wall. There's acupuncture figurines. There's flying dragons. There's plum blossoms. There's tigers. There's Tibetan mandala flags. You walk in and you're in a wholly different phenomenological environment. Just coming in here, I'm already thinking about 
medicine and religion in different ways. <laughs> We've just brewed up a little bit of ginger tea here. And uh, if you hear us sipping during the conversation, that's what we're drinking together. So Mike, introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell them a little bit about what you do and where you're working these days. I'm an assistant professor at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. I'm based in the history department and I teach in the Li Kongtian School of Medicine. I'm a scholar of Chinese medical traditions, be they religious or within the classical tradition, be they in the early medieval period or the contemporary. You're one of a handful of experts of the intersections between religion and medicine in medieval China. And I know that comes from your exposure in your childhood to a lot of these kinds of ideas, uh, but maybe you can share some of your background with our listeners so that they can get a feel for how you got interested in the subject. So family background, that's, I'm a little shy to talk about it because when I was going into grad school, my mother used to say, don't ever talk about your grandfather in academic context. But anyway, his name was Xu Daolin. His grandfather was Xu Shuzheng, who was one of the warlords at Junfa under Duan Xirei in the early Mingguo period. And my mother is an art historian of Chinese art. My father is an art historian of Japanese art. So I grew up with Chinese texts and paintings around me, but not really having a grip on them myself. So you, you had some portion of your childhood anyway. You lived in Taiwan, and then you came to the UK for school. Is that right? Yeah. So I, like every taxi driver in each country, asks me this question, where are you from? And I'm like, I don't know how to answer. Depends if you ask where my parents are from or where I was born or where I've grown up. So my mom's half Chinese, half German. My father's English. I was born in Japan. And then I grew up in America and then Canada and then Taipei from, I don't know, 9 to 13. And then moved to Oxford for high school, not the university. And then after undergrad in the UK, I then did a Chinese medicine degree in Boulder, Colorado, with a Taiwanese family trained practitioner. Let's talk about that for a minute. So you went to your undergrad and you were studying philosophy. Mm. And then somehow you decided to go into Chinese medicine and become a practitioner, an acupuncturist. And what was the impetus behind that decision? I think coming out of a British education system, but with this mixed background, I wanted to understand how how different cultures embody, how different cultures are embodied. And so I was very interested in Eastern philosophy, Zen, and ended up studying with the yoga master before I went to undergrad. And so through my undergrad years, I was practicing yoga and sort of more meditation and chanting style. I knew that I wanted to be involved in a career where I could reflect on and practice in a way that dealt with the enculturement of the body. And I recognized somehow at the time that the set of cultural expectations, career expectations, and trajectories that I'd been living in were pointing in a certain direction that didn't fit what I understood, that there were multiple possibilities. And the most authoritative and the oldest alternative medicine that was around at the time, and it was called alternative medicine back in the 90s, was Chinese medicine. I thought this is a good place to go and it connects with my heritage. And so after my undergrad, I ended up by family circumstances in, in Colorado and happened across this teacher. Yeah, I, can, I think I can personally relate. And I think a lot of people with transnational or international family can relate to this sort of this feeling of not really belonging to one culture or another or having multiple cultures, multiple languages, multiple selves in many ways. You know, when you drop into a different language, you take on a different persona. So I, I certainly feel like for me, my sort of lifelong fascination with 
translation and transcultural movements and exchange and so forth that really comes out of my scholarship probably dates back to my early childhood just being shuffled between different cultures and languages. So I, I can, I think, hear a similar process in your story that you're telling right now. Yeah, I remember when I moved back to Taiwan after my acupuncture degree, herbs as well, so it's a Chinese medicine degree, I had this dream that I was, uh, I was doing a lot of dream journaling at the time, and I a, a dream that I was a ball of light that kept expanding and attracting and expanding and contracting. And weirdly, all of the Chinese that I'd forgotten since I was a teenager when I could speak it popped back up into memory. It's like a culture-bound personality suddenly woke up and remembered itself and became refluent again, just literally overnight. Oh, interesting. So I think we're already jumping into the things that I wanted to talk to you about, which is this kind of crossing across epistemes or crossing across perspectives and the places where these kind of worldviews or selves or perspectives overlap and where they don't, where there's tension, where there's confluence between them. I think that'll be a major theme that we'll keep coming back to throughout the conversation. But before we get sidetracked too much on that, your parents were both into Asian religion and healing traditions, right? I think your dad was into yoga, your mother was into Chinese medicine and other kinds of practices. So did you grow up with a lot of these kinds of crossovers between religion and medicine in your family when you were young? Oh, very much. They were interested in all kinds of things like Edgar Cayce and Secret Life of Plants and whale music, as well as Catholicism and Zen. We had a Zen monk come and do tea ceremonies in our house in Canada, visiting from Japan in the 70s. My mom was, was having TCM classes in our living room in Taipei. And so she had people come and needling her and moxing her and doing herbal preparations. Mom was also studying with a Taiji master who, you know, when he would do his Taiji Jian, he had to be very cautious with his sword, with his wooden sword, because he could burn his students with the tip of his sword. So my mom said, and she would always regale me with this one story of, uh, she went up to him and was like, come on, show me. And she's like, no, no, I don't want to hurt you. And she's like, show me, come on, oh, I'm tough, I'll take it. So he puts his two fingers on her liver and she said she could feel this spiral of chi moving and spiraling up and up towards her heart. And uh, as it got closer, she started to sweat and feel faint. And then he saw what was happening and touched her again and it all stopped. And he said, if it had got to your heart, you would have died. Now. I'm not saying whether or not that is true or empirically testable or whatever, but it was the narratives I was hearing in my childhood. So I kind of assumed they were true at the time. Your days as a practicing Chinese doctor were numbered, right? You did that for a short period of time and then went into graduate school to study these topics from a more kind of academic perspective. Yeah. I remember thinking when we would have our clinic and patient days, there was a sense of resistance or somehow something in me didn't fit. Because it was not the way I had imagined TCM would be, where there's a patient quietly with some qin music, some zither music in the background and a stick of incense, and they're all relaxed. No, we were using hands-on cranking on their pain points and resolving their pain through producing pain. And it was a very much blood and gutsy kind of experience. We were, or at least our teacher was setting bones, and we were seeing flesh wounds and stuff come into clinic. So it was a whole different order of medicine than I was used to. Sorry to interrupt, but I really like that you're bringing out that aspect of Chinese medicine, because it's so common for Western people or people who haven't encountered Chinese medicine or Asian medicine in Asia to think of it as this sort of like spa treatment, like you said, the zither music and the candles and so forth, and to miss all of this sort of blood and guts of the practice that you're talking about. Yeah, very much so. In fact, living in Boulder, Colorado, which I didn't know what it symbolized in American culture until I arrived there, because I just kind of arrived by family circumstance. There's a lot of crystal healers and practitioners of many different wonderful types and styles. And so the interpretation of what Chinese medicine had to offer was in the more cosmological frame. And some people would come in and say, 
I want to connect better to the universe. And the very, I would say, religious side of treatment was not something that was in my textbooks, and it's definitely not what Bao was teaching. Yeah. So there you are in Boulder. You're learning maybe the antithesis of New Age of Chinese medicine, right? Very embodied and physical. What made you shift from this blood and guts form of healing to then going into graduate school, specifically in the religious dimension of healing in China? Mm -hmm. So what, what was it that you saw along the way that made you shift from one mode to the other? There were a few things. One was, I noticed when we were having classes, a lot of my questions were not necessarily about how can I use this to get a patient better, but what's the cultural background behind it? What's the cultural context from which these perspectives evolved? And Paul would often talk about his referral network to Dangi, to trans mediums, to people in temples who would do what's it called, shoujing, which is the fright removal ritual. To He would mention feng shui a lot because he was quite interested in feng shui and how that could affect if you sleep under a beam, that can affect your heart. And martial artists, if people needed to train in certain elements. So it was a very different referral network than GPs are sending their people out to many in the religious sphere. So that question of where does medicine begin and religion end started in those classes. There was a big question for me as a practitioner. As you feel the pulse and you're running through all of the different patterns and the pattern names, there's a, a great deal of interpretation that the fingers are doing, which is not direct reception. And that interpretation is conditioned by what, how you think about it. So I couldn't really, it was hard for me to tell how much was my fingerly imagination and how much was what I was getting from the pulse. I mean, that question is something that, that practitioners answer for themselves over years. And in that question, I had very much this kind of objectivity problem. Well, how do I produce objectivity in a pulse measurement? Because I'm always interpreting it. So there is another part of it too, which is I look white and I sound white. And most people, if they talk to me for five minutes to half an hour, will assume that I'm grown up in North America. And I, I found myself suffering from a kind of cultural silence because everything that I'd absorbed and grown up with in Taiwan and from the Chinese side of the family was not there in my obvious identity. So there was something about me. I knew I had to have something which marked me as partly Asian and partly Chinese. I thought Chinese medicine would do it. But by the end, I got to the end of the degree and I was like, in the end, my conversations will not be like the ones I was used to growing up and hearing people talk about the value of art, the ethics of philosophy, the importance of discourse in the modern world and citing from the old traditions. Now, my parents would be citing old paintings as their kind of reference, but I don't know, the kind of education in Chinese classical thinking turned out to be much more important to me than I realized. I knew that there was something that they felt very passionately about that I wanted, I was missing, and the medicine part didn't get it enough for me. So yeah, I turned to the intellectual arts. Okay, so I can see how you're growing up in this family with multiple different cultures, languages, in various different places, and then your parents are practicing all of these different kinds of practices, and everything's swirling through as a young kid. You're just kind of steeping in all of this knowledge and then you go off to become a practitioner of Chinese medicine. And perhaps the hands-on practice was fulfilling in some ways, but it didn't answer the big epistemological questions looming large as a young person just trying to figure all of this out. And somehow you decide to 
go to graduate school and study Chinese religions as like your way of answering these big questions. Of course, we're good friends. We would have to be good friends because I'm just struck by how similar our upbringings and our early adulthood and our shift towards academia is. So people who are listening to the podcast who are interested in my story and how close it is to yours can go back and listen to the very first episode where producer Lan Lee interviews me about my background and so forth. But very much on a very similar trajectory, the transnational sort of upbringing in the family and then period of time as a practitioner and then larger epistemic questions driving me to grad school and very much interested in Indo-Chinese exchange and circulation and so forth. And then from there going into the field that, that I'm in now. So I feel like you and I have been on these kind of parallel tracks for maybe our whole lives, certainly in grad school and in our professional careers. We often are sort of like the yin and yang to each other, you with your study of Taoism and medicine, me with my study of Buddhism and medicine. And we have batted around a lot of the same questions and maybe not always agreed, but always agreed that these questions are really interesting to talk about. Um, yeah. Okay. So you went to do your master's degree at Indiana with the power team of Chinese religions. These are some of the most influential scholars of our time. Yeah. But one by one, they got pulled in different directions. And then I was visiting London and I met Tim Barrett because I'd used his work a lot in my MA thesis. He said, oh, you should read Vivienne's work, Vivienne Law. And I got her called of her dissertation and I was blown away with her trying to get at the sensed body, the lived body through these excavated texts was the most exciting thing. Yeah. For those people who are not familiar with Vivian Law's work, she works on the earliest emergence of the Chinese medical system, the acupuncture points and the lines and how those connect with self-cultivation practices in Warring States period. One of the most influential and interesting scholars of early Chinese medicine, really showing how this sort of system of Chinese medicine got assembled and has a number of articles out about the materiality of the body and the role of the of the material body in the production of those systems. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. And she comes from an in, a similar kind of trajectory, being half Chinese, half Welsh, having a transnational existence and coming to scholarly study from practice because she was first doing Taiji, and then she developed from her Taiji into doing acupuncture. And she's also quite an accomplished practitioner of the culinary arts too, right? Oh. Having published a cookbook and she owned some restaurants, right? Before she became a so her, scholar. Her dad was the first TV Chinese cook in Britain, Ken Lo. And Ken Lo Can Cook it was a famous TV show in the 70s. Yeah. So you were studying with Vivienne at the Wellcome Institute at the University College London. This is probably, I would say, one of the top maybe three medical history programs in the world at the time, at least in the Anglo sphere, and a really interesting place. You had scholars studying Indian medicine and Chinese medicine and Western medicine, kind of a very global context there. So you had this master's degree training in religious studies, and then this very sort of comprehensive history of medicine training in your PhD, and you wound up writing a dissertation on early Taoist medicine, right? Or actually, you don't like the term Taoist medicine. So early <laughs> Taoists doing healing practices, right? <laughs> yes. I think it's fine to say Taoist medicine as long as we recognize that it's a modern term that we're using to package and organize early materials, but that early practitioners didn't have that concept. I think it's fine. Yeah. This is a season of the podcast dedicated to Buddhist medicine, but I think we're all in agreement that these are our terms that we're using for convenience to orient us to a certain topic and not necessarily terms that were utilized in the medieval period. 
so anyway, you wrote a dissertation on Taoist healing in in Six Dynasties China. That is, you're working on turning that into a book, and we'll have you on in the future when that book comes out to talk about that because it connects with our themes here of Asian medicine and religion and spirituality and so forth. To fast forward a little bit, so you got your position at Nanyang and you've been working there for about five years teaching and while writing this book on Taoist medicine also have this amazing side project. Actually, you have multiple side projects and one of these side projects is the recently published Rutledge Handbook of Chinese Medicine, which you co-edited with Vivian Lo. And I think this is an amazing book. I know that this has been a project that has been at least a decade in the making, because I know that we were talking about this back as early as 2013, I think. The book came out in 2022. You've gathered together, I don't know what, 30 or 40 contributors who have contributed different chapters, focusing on different aspects of Chinese medicine. The book is written in such a way, I think it does a good job of appealing to both scholars as well as practitioner readers, this maybe para-academic or crossover sort of zone that I also have published in as well, where we're trying to make the latest scholarly work really accessible to a wide audience. So it's a great book for teaching purposes, undergraduate classroom, maybe at, an, at acupuncture schools and other kinds of Chinese medicine schools. And also just anybody who's interested in Chinese medicine more generally, I think would gain a lot from picking up the book. Fortunately, very fortunately, this book is also available in open access format, which means you can download the PDF freely online and you're not breaking the law. You're in fact doing what's intended. And I would highly recommend that everybody go out and download the book and peruse the contents because it's a very rich set of chapters on basically all dimensions of Chinese medicine. Much too much for us to get into here, but just wanted to congratulate you on the publication of that. And um, I think the book's a really important contribution to the field, a field-defining work that will be very influential in the years to come. Thanks. So Chinese medicine actually is such a huge subject because it touches on so many dimensions of culture and society and politics and economics throughout Chinese history. There's so many different disciplines that study Chinese medicine from history to anthropology to sociology to practitioners. And you have collected together contributors who are coming from across all of these different disciplines to produce this volume. And I'm just wondering what the experience was like for you to be the editor at the middle of this project, pulling together all of this scholarship and how you were thinking about shaping this book. How are you approaching the diverse range of different perspectives that you were hearing from all of these specialists? And how do you think these come together to serve the field more broadly? The book started out as a party. Vivienne, as you mentioned earlier, is a fantastic cook. And when she hosts parties, more people than can fit in the room usually arrive. And really, we wanted to include everybody. And even in the last couple of years, as we were wrapping up and I was trying to push it towards completion, Vivienne was very much, oh, but we haven't included this, that, and the other. So we included like 10 more chapters, I think, got added in the last couple of years, very much to Vivienne's credit. And it was extremely exciting just to have some of the most dynamic, 
rising stars and senior scholars contributing to this volume and to see this wealth of literature come in. We really asked everyone to write it in a very approachable way so that, as you said, anybody could read it, but also pay a lot of attention to the bibliography so that people could really leapfrog from the chapter into the depths of the best scholarship on that topic if they wanted to. So we begin the first initial chapters, talk about the kind of long durée intellectual structures and ideas. There are chapters on canonization and fundamental notions like yin and yang and five phases and qi, these kind of grounding concepts. We wanted to start out with these so people could come in and say, okay, these are some of the cornerstones. We have a section on sickness and healing from case records to anatomy and surgery in Chinese medicine. There's a there is an understanding that Chinese medicine is based on flows and sensations where there's actually very much, as we were saying earlier, a very embodied, visceral, tactile, and observable body is very much present in Chinese medicine. And so we have notions of sickness and healing. We have madness and epidemiology in the late imperial China and folk medicine. Then a couple of great chapters on sex and food. Of course, we had to have a section on religion and medicine. So we have a chapter from you on Buddhist medicine, which is, it provides this great overview of concepts and practices. We have Taoism and medicine, alchemy and medicine, and folk religion and medicine. And then really thinking about this notion of translation in some ways takes up the whole of the second half of the book. I see a pattern difference between intra-Asian transmissions, and I think that transmission is quite different from its wider diaspora to France in the 18th century, to the U.S. We have a great chapter on the Imperium Hispanicum and into Africa, as well as looking at the foundations of the WHO in its relationship to traditional medicines. And the final section, Negotiating Modernity, looks at the 20th century institutionalizations or reinstitutionalizations of Chinese medicine, both within China and beyond, and the kind of negotiation with botany, modern pharmacology, and legislation. So we're, we're seeing China emerging as part of the global traditional medicine marketplace and the very many different dimensions in which that's playing out. It's pointing to those kind of conversations. So I contributed a chapter on Buddhist medicine to this volume, but I'll note that I was not invited to any party at Vivian's, and I'll have to take that up with her <laughs> later. <laughs> oh, the party is a metaphorical one. There, there was no founding party for the book. The, the book is the party. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for walking us through that. So another side project that you've also been working on recently is another edited volume called Situating Religion and Medicine in Asia. By the time this episode is airing, it will already be available, at least for pre-order. And this book is another long-term project that came together after many years of conferences and conversations between a number of scholars. And the conference in Berlin that launched this project maybe was 2016. So it's something that I'm, re I'm really excited about and have been following as it's been developing. So the book, Situating Religion and Medicine in Asia from Manchester University Press, is really, I think, another field-defining work. The purpose of the book is to take a snapshot of where we are in the study of Asian medicine within the academy and to suggest where we might go in the future. Um, and I think you've got a lot of heavy-hitting scholars on the list of contributors, people who have really 
made a large mark in the fields of Chinese medicine, Indian medicine, Tibetan medicine, Southeast Asian medicine. So before we get into the details of the chapters that are about Buddhist medicine, maybe more broadly, I could ask you, what, what was your intention in putting this book together? What was your goal? What was your intervention you were trying to make? So first of all, I want to thank you from, yeah, really the bottom of my heart for all of the work that we have done together on this and thinking through it. Although my name appears on the spine, Pierce's thoughts and labor are in all the pages. It's been really a tremendous to, to think through these ideas with you over many late nights at conferences and workshops over the many years, and sometimes just on Skype in the middle of the night or on, on your drive to work. <laughs> and the question was that there are these subtle shapings of the way that experts on early primary sources read those sources and assume that medicine and religion are a divided terrain and easily clump them off. And I was always struck by this problem of a rabbit duck because I would think, oh, this is a medical text and I'd read it and say, there's religious stuff in here. I'm going to jump in real quick and make sure that our listeners are following what you just said. So you said religion and medicine are like a rabbit duck. So what's a rabbit duck? So the rabbit duck is an image that first appeared in German newspaper in 1892. It was a kind of an op optical illusion. When you look at it one way, it looks like a rabbit. When you look at it from another way, it looks like a duck. And it was brought to people's attention by Joseph Jastrow and then put into the stratosphere by Ludwig Wittgenstein, who used it to describe two different ways of seeing. I think this is a perfect metaphor that really captures how you and I think about religion and medicine. And this is something we've talked about all the time. So tell us what you mean by the rabbit duck illusion. The fact that you can look at the same picture, in one way it looks like a rabbit, in another way it looks like a duck. And how does that relate to religion and medicine? I found when I would be reading Taoist sources and I'd be looking at these texts and I would be analyzing them from a religious studies perspective and I'd be looking at the things you look for, canon of sacred texts or syncretism or the cosmological framings or hagiographies and all these kind of classical religious studies entries into the literature. But coming from you know, my background as a clinician, I was always looking at how is it applied? What does it do? What's its, how is it used? And so much of it was used for healing. It was used for transforming bodily disease or resolving the problem of death. Even reading the Yellow Emperor's Inner Classic, which is famously a departure from the earlier kind of transmedium traditions of practice and looking at much more stable theories about the ways that the natural world operated. Nevertheless, the spirits are not absent from the milieu in which the Yellow Emperor's Inner Classic circulates. You still find spirits coming in and out of the body. You have the personification of the inner organs. So I have this line in my 2014 book where I say something like, in medieval China, any tradition that you would point at and say, this is religion, for example, Buddhism, Taoism, transmediums, etc., all of those traditions turn out to have a lot of ideas about how to heal in a very practical kind of way, as well as models of how the body works and how illness and disease and health work. And then anything that you want to point at and say, this is medicine, for example, the acupuncture tradition turns out to have all of this cosmological and magical and religious content. And so this is the rabbit duck that when you look at these things one way, they seem to be medical. You look at them another way, they seem to be religious. This happens again and again anywhere you look in medieval China. So 
it occurred to me that I, I can write about this in my own field, look at Taoist medicine from this perspective and write a book that will interest Taoist scholars and medical historians. But it struck me that this is a problem of mid-20th century concepts that we're all, I don't know, tainted by, polluted by, we all participate in, we're all guilty of. It's part of the fabric in which we think. And, so these two terms, religion and medicine, right, we're talking about them in English, and these two terms have a history in Western thought, so we have this kind of separation between science and religion, and this is a, a form of categorizing that is very familiar to contemporary Western people, modern people, but actually is irrelevant or even distorting if we bring that perspective to look at medieval Chinese sources or other times and places. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the intensification of that difference I see as a 20th century thing, but you can definitely trace it back. The first church separation in Europe from medicine is in the 13th century. At the time that the universities were being founded, this is a tradition that we're both members of, from Padua onwards, they were dividing up the curriculum into law, theology, and medicine. And soon after, it became canon law that priests could not practice medicine for profit, etc. And so that there are all these stages of institutionalization and division that happen that are part of the architecture through which we read. However, scholars in the 20th century were, were reading these as absolutes, right? The basic features of human cognition to divide up knowledge in the world in these ways. And medical anthropology has been teasing at these problems for quite some time. And Stanley Tambaya, I think, has the cornerstone on, uh, in some ways on this in his work in 1989, where he argued that religion, science, and rationality was weighted with this civilizational bias that tacitly privileged progressive Europe versus backwards Asia. And anytime you talk about rationality and compare it to religion or faith, there are these kind of east-west dichotomies that are operating in the background. And I'm surprised actually how Tambaya is not cited. Yeah, I, this, this book was really influential for me too. The book is called Magic, Science and Religion and the Scope of Rationality. And I, I think it is a really interesting intellectual history of these categories of magic and science and religion and the Western tradition of really divorcing those from one another and how doing so makes it so that rationality and science is a Western tradition and the magic and superstition and so forth is the Asian tradition. I feel like one of the things you're trying to do is to level the playing field so that we don't use these modern categories and apply them anachronistically to the past in Asia with the result that we wind up thinking of the contemporary biomedical or scientific knowledge as superior and the medieval Chinese knowledge as inferior. You're doing something different, something that I think is bringing these onto a level playing field. There's a term which I don't like to pronounce, but I think it captures it, is this notion of epistemological incommensurability. The idea that these two things are like oil and water. They cannot meet, and one is always inferior to the other. You know, and I'll hear from students in my classes, they'll say, oh, well, is Chinese medicine scientific? And I say, well, tell me what science is. What is science? How do you define it? A lot of the empiricism that we look for, we think only exists in Western medicine or biomedicine, is present. It's very much grounded in a very nuanced diagnostic of the individual. But that data has been accumulated tacitly within the tradition, within the hands, within the eyes, within the pulses, within the text, within the language of Chinese medicine. 
it's not extractable in the way that modern science has become created. Nevertheless, its power and efficacy is there. What we're at is a point where there's a failure to translate across the two. And I think I'm really interested in creating a a more accessible platform for these Asian traditions so we can better understand them as not being inferior, just different and not easily translatable. And I think we're long past the time where we can just bypass Asian medicine as being irrelevant and a relic of the past because they're constantly reasserting themselves into the public sphere, increasingly. Maybe I feel that because I live in Singapore where it's part of the lived tradition and it will never go away. I was just reading a book last week on resources that we need to prevent antimicrobial resistance in order to cope with new viruses and new pandemics. The biodiversity in China, the biodiversity in Southeast Asia is has so much there to offer. But if we can't make use of those and we can't learn from those traditions and make them accessible, we're really failing the general good, the public health of the world. Yeah, I'm interested in what you're saying here. I think you're pointing at a way of learning from Chinese medicine or from Asian medicine more generally that doesn't involve appropriating it, commodifying it, and commercializing it, but rather bringing the knowledge and the ways of knowing from Asian medicine into conversation with biomedicine and with science and with other realms of knowledge in a way that that really values what that tradition has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I think the extractive notion of let's just select the molecules that are active in a particular drug and then put a name on it, Pfizer or AstraZeneca. So there's a political colonialization element that's there that I'm really trying to mobilize against. But there's also what we don't know is that, in fact, the ways of diagnosing and ways of knowing and ways of treating may be much more effective than the silver bullet approach of biomedicine. And right now, it's this failure of Western science to understand what's going on in Chinese medicine. That doesn't mean that Chinese medicine is ignorant or doesn't know things. They know things. For example, people have been bicycling since the bicycle was invented. And nobody needed a kinesiologist to do a whole forces and vectors study of how a bicycle is balanced to tell somebody that they can use it. There are billions of people cycling and making their lives work. But they don't need to be told by a kinesiologist how that happens. It's just, it's just done. And I think there's definitely an epistemic arrogance which trades on the history of colonialization and those kind of racial biases. And they also are trading on institutionalization and capitalization of certain forms of knowing, which have a huge amount of power on the current health marketplace. I, I just want to take a pause from there. Mm-hmm. And so you've used the word episteme or epistemic, and I just want to make sure that our listeners understand how you're using that term. So what do you mean by an episteme? Yeah, so episteme refers to a way of knowing and modes of knowing. We could say biomedicine, modern science is one kind of episteme. We could say classical Chinese medicine maybe is another episteme, and Mm. maybe Buddhist worldviews are another episteme, and that these are different ways of understanding the world, understanding our place in it, understanding the body, and in particular, when it comes to medicine, understanding health and disease and well-being and all of these different perspectives. Yeah. Whereas in the past, people have written about the act of knowing is taking place in this apersonal, timeless space of the mind or the this kind of abstract subject. In STS, or science and technology studies, there's a strong recognition that those forms of knowing are thickly embedded with power and thickly embedded with social, economic, political relations. 
And so they don't just play out in the mind. They play out in the world in powerful and impactful ways. So one of the things that your volume is trying to do is to approach these different forms of Asian medicine, really different epistemes, different worldviews, different ways of knowing that we might see in India in the colonial period or in the ancient period, or we might see in medieval Tibet, or we might see in early China, or we might see in contemporary Malaysia, these different contexts that your book includes, but that you're searching for a way of putting these different ways of knowing into conversation with one another that doesn't rely on these outdated concepts of religion and medicine that place all of these Asian traditions into a hierarchical relationship with biomedicine and science, or that defines them in terms of modern Western concepts like religion and medicine. One of the things I think your book is doing really successfully is introducing this notion, situating, that you've got in the title. That term, situating, is doing a lot of work for you in the volume and in your thinking. Maybe you can share how you came to this particular term and what you think this term is doing for you. It came out of a problem that I could see that everybody working in ISTAM, the Society for Study of Traditional Asian Medicine, which is filled with anthropologists and historians of medicines across Asia. Everyone's been trying to get out of the European-centric view and how do we get beyond these categories? And so what happens when we get rid of Europe completely? How do we write history of science in Asia? How do we write history of medicine in Asia once we get rid of the European question? Then what's left? What's integral to Asia itself? And the first thing to do is get rid of edict concepts, right? Non-local concepts and read closely the source material. And then once you find in there, once you start looking in there, what are the rhymes and reasons which local actors are defining and structuring their knowledge? How are they doing that? Um, and getting really close to that bone requires close reading or close listening, depending on your time period. And in doing so discovering how local actors are situating their knowledge scapes, how they're situating the relations between different forms of knowing, their power, the authority, what constitutes authoritative evidence. Can be things like canon, can be things like charismatic leaders, can be the state. And I think rather than trying to have a single question that everyone must ask or a canon of literature to which everyone must refer, the framework is more about understanding how we are each navigating our scholarly terrain and understanding better the contours with which each scholar today is writing in from their own, the legacy of scholarship within their period, how they're situating against that, and how earlier actors are situating themselves in their epistemic context, right? How the knowledge is contoured. I ask my students in all of my classes now, how does a fish know it's underwater? So situating is understanding the waters in which the fish are swimming and how they're different from place to place, how the specific currents of those waters and the specific temperature of those waters really are affecting all of the life within it. Yeah, yeah. Those fish are living their lives in that context. But the interesting thing about the fish, it just does not, it's not just in the water. The water is in the fish. It's very important to be aware that we're not just looking at the past. The past is in us, living itself out through us. We cannot have an identity without forms that we have been granted. That's classic Foucault. But we nevertheless are living in them and adapting them and changing them as we do. So we are the tradition. We're in the tradition and we're changing it as we live it. 
So it's this constant engaged process. And I really want to get readers and historians and practitioners into this space of knowing the flows and processes in their time and place. That's situating. So I'm just struck by, it seems like every conversation you and I have, whether we're talking about scholarship or we're talking about our personal lives, always comes back to holding more than one perspective at the same time, mm -hmm. being able to switch between different epistemes or different perspectives and not seeing things through one sort of hegemonic, monolithic way of seeing things. It sounds to me like this is an ongoing theme in our conversation, whether it's a practitioner of acupuncture and then a scholar and having these different kinds of perspectives as a kid, or if it's now like trying to generate a scholarship that can accommodate these multiple epistemes and not just resolve everything down to the biomedical or the scientific or the material, but being able to create the space where all of these different Asian traditions each can be seen as their own situating context. I just feel like this is a really common theme for when you and I speak mm. about pretty much anything <laughs> yeah, that yeah. we come back to this again and again. All right, Mike. So since this is a podcast about, at least this season is about Buddhism and medicine, I feel like we really need to dig into these three chapters in the book that specifically relate to Buddhism and medicine. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about those chapters and really how do they situate religion and medicine or Buddhism and medicine mm -hmm. in those three different contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Katya Triplett writes on religion and medicine in pre-modern Japan, and she goes from the Nara period through up through the Edo. And one of the things that actually I found surprising in the volume and the Buddhist chapters in some ways are the, are the, were the surprising ones was the way in which the state plays an important role in structuring medicine and religion that I hadn't expected. So in, in Japan, it's by imperial decree that Buddhism has the epistemic authority over medicine, and they really can control who gets to play a role in the production of knowledge and the transmission of knowledge. So Taoism doesn't really get a say in Japan at all. It's trickling in on the fringes, but in terms of who are the primary healers in Japan, it's doctors and or physicians and Buddhist monks and priests. It's very interesting to see that sort of relationship and the, the solidity of Buddhism in Japan creates this kind of stable structure, which maintains medicine throughout. And for Jeffrey Samuel's chapter, it's quite a different setup. There is a particular moment that became, I'm not in Tibetan studies, but a, a matter of, I don't want to say controversy, but of a lot of discussion which was Janet Gyatso's volume on Being Human. Is that the title? Yeah, that's a 2015 book by Janet Gyatso called Being Human in a Buddhist World. We actually discussed that back in episode two with Bill McGrath, who is a specialist on Tibetan medicine. So listeners who are interested in more information about Janet Gyatso's book can go back and listen to that episode. And you're right, it was a controversial book about the modern nature of Tibetan medicine in the 17th century. So Jeffrey Samuels critiques the use of modern categories in reading early, in reading 17th century Tibetan debates and argues for a more epistemologically balanced approach. And he argues that the volume by uh, Vincent Adams, Manoj Hrempf, and Sienna Craig in 2010, Medicine Between Science and Religion, offers a more balanced covering of the different kinds of epistemes that are at play in how Tibetans negotiate authority, medical authority. But the interesting part about the debate is that the state comes in, makes a decision about the way they're going to go in terms of what kind of evidence they trust. And 
we see the state playing a hard hand in the way that debates are shifted. With Celine Caudray's chapter, she's looking at working ethnographically in modern Myanmar. And so she surveys the varieties of medicine that are available today in Myanmar and how they're organized. And there's, of course, biomedicine and then Buddhist medicine and then basically folk medicine, which is a, includes divination and alchemy. And she tracks the history of the privileging of Buddhist medicine because it's a Buddhist state that this privilege has been granted by the state and has been institutionalized through political power, but that prior to the modern state, alchemy and divination and Buddhist forms of healing had a much more even interplay, and that this new structure is not emic, it's not indigenous to Myanmar, but has been imposed by the new politics. So I was quite surprised at the role that the state played in structuring religion and medicine. And that's a really interesting point that kind of pushes back against sort of Western stereotypes about Buddhism more generally, that it's all about meditation and about sort of like transcendence and detachment and so on and so forth. And when you actually look at the way Buddhism has played out historically in Asia, it often involves a sort of authoritarian state or a very strong state, the imposition of Buddhism as the state religion. And, and there's been a very many cases, very cozy relationship between the Buddhist Sangha and the, the secular authorities. So I'm wondering what else was surprising to you in the Buddhist chapters, if there was anything else that stands out in contrast with the rest of the chapters. What I want to reflect on there is that there's, in addition to what you've just said about the orientalized notion of Buddhism as something that happens in a cognitive place, whereas in fact, science and technology studies note that these things don't exist just in epistemic spaces. They play out in dimensions of power and they play out in dimensions of sociality. And that's really what we're getting at with situating. Yeah. So political power, social power, social capital, these are integral parts of what you mean by situating, integral forces within the waters that the fish live in, right? These exactly. are like the currents of the water that the fish are living in. I'm wondering, did the state play such a role in the other chapters? Like you have chapters on, on China and on Southeast Asia and other contexts. Is the state not playing such a strong role in those places or put, maybe playing it. I think what's role. interesting about the Buddhist ones is that they are, it, it's indigenous state power. So in the two South Asian papers by Helen Lambert and Project Mukherjee, it's colonial power that's coming in and then reshaping the contours of forms of knowing and defining what's medicine and what's religion. And also the heritage of Indology, certainly in Project Mukherjee's paper. Indology um, meaning the Western study of India. Which is not unrelated to state interest, but it's not directly state-produced. And also, Konstantin Kanavas charts the outplay of homeopathy and Islam in Malaysia and the way that homeopathy becomes identified as prophetic medicine. But that's not really mandated by the state in such a strong hand. There's an Islamification of Malaysia. And in that process, it becomes germane that homeopathy also takes on a prophetic identity. But it's not nearly such a strong hand. So I would say that it's indigenous state power in the Buddhist chapters. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So were there other aspects of the Buddhist chapters that stood out to you as being particularly unique or interesting in comparison with the other traditions and the other contexts? I mean, in that they are connected by their Buddhism across Japan, Tibet, and Myanmar. The other ones on female alchemy by Elena Velusi is definitely a local Chinese tradition. Nathan Sivan 
who's writing about religion and healthcare in middle period China, surveys a variety of religio-medical practitioners who are interestingly all registered by the state, but they're it's a local, localized thing. It's uh, one thing about Buddhism, right, is perhaps not in the first 500 years where Buddhism was really just practiced in India, but really once Buddhism became a trans-regional or trans-Asian tradition, there was so much circulation happening between these different cultures that they were, and they were all very aware that they were participating in this larger Buddhist world, right? And that they had pilgrims and translation of texts moving back and forth between mm -hmm. all of these contexts. And so Buddhists, I think, have always understood themselves to be part of an interconnected cross-cultural network. So do you see the practitioners in Malaysia participating in transnational networks with conversations happening with practitioners in, say, northern India or in the Middle East or in northern Africa? They're also part of this kind of trans with transnational network. Well, Islamic healers would have this whole Unani connection over to the Greco-Arabic. That whole pan-Arab peninsula to South Asia, into Southeast Asia, actually, and over into Africa. And there's definitely, there's a consciousness there. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that sort of adds an additional dimension to your notion of situating. So we're not just talking about the local conditions in one particular place, but we're also talking about these sort of pan-Asian or trans-regional kind of influences and dynamics as well. Yes. That's a perspective I think about a lot. So, um, yeah, just a minute ago, you mentioned the chapter by Nathan Sibbon. So I just wanted to pause and acknowledge Nathan, who just passed away last year in the summer of 2022. He was really a founder of the field of the history of Chinese science, medicine, and religion. He was a prolific scholar in all of those areas. And really, I think he certainly wasn't the first Western scholar to work on these topics, but he really, I think, was the first Western scholar to come at this from a more sociological perspective, right? He was a historian, but very interested in the dynamics of power and politics and social influences on medicine. And taking the history of Chinese medicine out of that really ethereal, it's all ideas and concepts, although he didn't use the word situating, really contextualizing all of that within the dynamics of society. So Nathan passed away before the book came out, but fortunately he was able to write that chapter for you before passing away. Yeah. In fact, he was editing this chapter in his final days. He really was a scholar to the end, through and through. And there's just so much respect and I that I have for him and that the field has for him. There's two quotes of him that ring particularly true for this volume. One is one that he sent to me in an email and it's just, curing is everywhere and always the cutting edge of religion. And then he said, called that Sivan's fourth law. <laughs> I don't think he ever published the first, second, and third. That's just right, that I feel like I've actually said something quite similar that healing is always the cutting edge of Buddhism as uh -huh. it's being introduced to a new culture that seems healing is really at the forefront of Buddhist proselytizing. He um, may have cited that to me after you put no, that no, no, on no. print. No, 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 no. I'm but... not meaning to take any credit for it. On the contrary, I probably got it from him. <laughs> <laughs> so Nathan was in my scholarly lineage was like my grandfather. He was my advisor's advisor. And he also lived here in Philadelphia. So I had a lot of lunches with him and a lot of emails with him over the years. So I'm sure I absorbed my notion from him and not the other way around. What was the second quote that you were going to say? So the other one is he would talk about the awesome taboo, which is the resistance or hesitancy of scholars of the orthodox classical traditions to sully themselves by engaging in the technical traditions. So technical, you mean 
the bone setters and the practitioners of massage and the practitioners of acupuncture and the people who work with their hands. Yeah, it's people who work with their hands Yeah, and doctors and yeah, medical authors too. So Mike, we talked a lot about these side projects that you've had going on, these major contributions that you've made to the field while also continuing to work on your primary area of research in Taoist medicine, the medieval period. And we'll have you back on to talk about that book when it comes out. So one of the ways we'd like to wrap up is just to ask you what you're working on now and where things are going in the future. And I know a little bit about your project, digitizing texts and making a database so that you can track the movements of medicinal substances around Asia, both historically and today. Another thing is that this database is going to be able to not only track these medicinal substances geographically, but then also across different languages by creating connections between the names of medicinals in different languages. I understand there's a connection between all of this historical movement of texts and then some of the things that you're learning about the local traditions of medicine in Singapore as well. This is a um, this is an appropriate moment to disclose an unknown secret, something I've never told anyone before. But you were the inspiration for this project. Oh, really, I've never yeah. even heard that. Because, <laughs> I've never heard you say that. Yeah, because I was thinking Pierce has got this handle on Buddhist medicine, and he's seen he's going to mind where it all is in the Buddhist canon. He's just got these great array of all of these different texts and types of material, and I was thinking. Where is it in the Taoist canon? So how do we even start that? I was the, the job in between UCL and, and Singapore. I was at the Max Planck Institute for History of Science. And Chen Shipei was starting out there doing DH work. And she's like, I know people in Taida, in, in National Taiwan University, who can answer that. And so they they began to develop this, what became this site and set of tools called DocuSky where you can convert a primary source text into a database. So the question was, we can go to Academia Sinica or even a Google search, and you can look for one term. But how do you look for 12,000 terms and find out where they all are, and then map out the degrees of their distribution, the time, etc.? So what DocuSky does is adds a lot of what we call metadata, which is the author, the date. And we add geographic data now, like where the text was produced and the genre of the text. So I set up this database to show Buddhist, Taoist, and medical texts up to the end of the time period I was interested in, the Six Dynasties, 589, the Common Era. And then we can map the distribution of, of those terms. And I realized, having done that, you can do that with anything, right? With ritual objects or philosophical terms or body parts or disease names. You name it, you can throw it in there and it has this potential. And DocuSky themselves are excited about this potential and producing a place and a tool for scholars to make their own databases and do these kind of inquiries. So it's produced a whole set of different questions and different kinds of approaches to texts. For example, once we mapped it out, you can see the distribution on the land in a way that was never visible before. And that was really exciting. I could see the majority of the drugs are all located along rivers, for example. There's actually a ton more questions that I wanted to be able to ask. And I haven't actually started doing any of the writing on this, really, because I've been busy building it. But for the, the medical texts, I met up with someone from the China Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences and who donated a huge set of already marked up texts from a database that they had, which is running out of funding. Nobody was supporting it, so I'm able to give it a new life. And we're just about to publish this. So we'll have 392 
Chinese medical texts between the Tang and the national, nationalist period, the Mingguo period, which are directly transcribed from high-quality manuscripts, manuscript or woodblock copies. The majority of them are Ming and Qing editions, so we could track recipe change over time. But the other thing I was interested in was tracking across language. So in coming to Singapore, I've discovered there's a local tradition, which I call Peranakan medicine, which is, on the one hand, Chinese language drug recipes, which are using drugs that are coming from China. But all the annotations are in Malay because a lot of Peranakans don't actually read Chinese anymore, they, but they, they speak Malay. They speak Baba Malay. It's a, a Peranakan style Malay. And so you have these kind of mixed language recipes. What we also have is a living tradition. They're the gardener on our campus is Hokkien by background, speaks Hokkien. And he set up a herb garden about 15 years ago because his brother died from cancer. So he's giving herbs away to anyone who comes by out of the generosity of his heart. And he grows, he has grown anywhere between 100 and 300 different medicinal species, the majority of which are Southeast Asian. They're not in the, the Chinese pharmacopoeia or they don't play a major role in those. Um, but they're very important in Malay medicine. But they're all talking about them and thinking about them in Chinese and in Chinese disease terms. And this is totally undocumented. Nobody's really studied this fusion of traditions. So coming to Singapore was a total eye-opener in terms of the migration and the translation of tradition. So we have also transcribed about 11 or 12 Malay texts, and then we can basically link pediatric herbs, for example, in Chinese medicine and compare them to Malay pediatric herbs, which you could never do in a kind of large-scale way. And that's the future research that we want to do with the not just pediatrics, but what we see coming out of the text. Once we've got the data up and running, I'm looking forward to the next level of kind of scholarly analysis to come. I started out the project under the title Drugs Across Asia, but later I've just changed the name to Polyglot Asian Medicines because this suits the project much better. One of the things that's really interesting to me about that project is how you trained in early medieval Chinese history and reading classical texts, then started producing a database where you're you're working with digitized text, you're working with XML, and you're tagging different terms. And I'm really curious on how you pivoted to this digital humanities project and what it's like to work on these texts from this very sort of high tech, very kind of contemporary way of analyzing them. You're able to read classical Chinese and read these texts and do close reading of these texts in the original language and to be able to visualize the connections between texts across time is quite a different way of thinking. We're used to tracking the movement of one particular substance and then writing that story, but how do we track patterns of multiple substances moving across language? That takes more expertise than one person can manage, usually, to do it rigorously. The other aspect that I I hope it produces is a digital space to network people operating from very many different disciplines. Historians looking at local traditions and the movement of them, and anthropologists looking at the contemporary use and adaptation, people in new drug discovery and natural products research who are interested in developing new new medicines. And I would hope that this can also have an impact on the sustainability of Asian medicines. I think there's a new dimensions of influence that Asian medicines will have on healthcare in the future, potentially in terms of new pandemic prevention medicines or antimicrobial resistance. And as that market stress on the environmental resources aspect of Asian medicines, we will need to think in the future about new areas for 
growing Asian medicines. I hope that this can help communication across these multiple dimensions of scholarship. So, Mike, is there anything else that we haven't talked about? Anything you want to add before we close up? Just my thanks for today, this conversation, and the years of scholarship that I've been able to do with you. It's been really awesome journey. Yeah, the feeling is entirely mutual, Mike. And I think we've only started to scratch the surface of the things that we can talk about. So hopefully you'll come back and talk to us in the years to come. And I'm really looking forward to more conversations with you off the mic too, because we always have those fascinating jam sessions late into the night and looking forward to that as well. That's it for today from us at the Blue Barrel Podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash blue barrel. Until next time, be happy and be well.